you there, everybody. We're going to kick off episode 571 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear with another song from the band The Surfer Jets. I played them last week. I'm going to play them again this week. This is the song Warm Up. It's from their album Roller Think. Go check them out at thesurferjets.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. When you're done listening to this episode, because this episode, I've been looking forward to doing this one for a little while. This is an interview with an author that I've never had on the show before. This week, we are speaking with author Julian David Stone, the man behind an upcoming book called It's Alive. Well, we're monster kids. We can't hear the phrase It's Alive without imagining a certain 1931 film. Well, that's what this book's about. And so much more. This is an incredible novel that I had a great time chatting about with the author. Oh, hey, by the way, this is Derek M. Cook, your writer, host, and producer of Monster Kid Radio, and I am thrilled to have you here. Now, of course, we've got all the bells and whistles that you've come to expect with an episode of Monster Kid Radio. We've got Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We've got Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review. We even have a little bit of feedback. Why don't we go ahead and get into that right now? It's time. It's time? Yes, it's time. It's, it's time, time for, for Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio, Radio Mail Call. All right, this email comes from a friend of the show, frequent guest of the show, upcoming guest of the show, I'm sure, and a fellow podcaster. It's Tom Greganis from Go Forth and Game. Tom says this. Hi, Derek. I caught up on Monster Kid Radio with the most recent episodes on The Innocence and The People. As usual, both were excellent. Here are some thoughts. The Innocence. I need to see this. I've heard about it for years and never have had the chance to watch it. This episode just bolstered the desire to watch it for me. It sounds amazing from your descriptions. I like Deborah Kerr and Martin Stevens. Stevens is one of the creepiest kids ever. He was something else in Village of the Damned, and I can't wait to see him in this film. Oddly, he has no credits after 1966. He apparently lost interest in acting and later became an architect. I'll report back once I've seen this one. The People. This one sounds fun. I always enjoy William Shatner, and the plot sounds somewhat interesting. I enjoy the quote-unquote feel of 70s TV movies, and this one seems to fit right in there. You mentioned the Witch Mountain movies, and from your description, this movie sounds like a TV version of those. The theme is very 70s, too. I'll also report back if I see this one. Thanks for the show. Stay scary. Tom. All right, I cannot wait to hear what you think about The Innocents. I, oh man, that movie. I keep thinking about it. I keep thinking about it. It's been weeks now since I've seen it and talked about it here on the show, and I keep thinking about it. I hope you dig it. As far as the people goes and the comparison to the escape from a return to Witch Mountain films from the 70s from the Disney, they were 70s, right? I'd have to go back and double check. I haven't watched them in a while. Darn, I'll have to go back and rewatch them. Anyway, I got a, a whiff of that off of the people, but maybe I played that card a little too hard. I, I don't know if it really reminds me of the Witch Mountain movies now in retrospect, but I do think it would be an interesting uh, double feature or triple feature since we're doing Witch Mountain films. Either way, I dug it too. And I'd love to hear back from you 
when you've seen these movies, man. If you want more about Tom, from Tom, regarding Tom, go check out GoForthAndGame.com. He's going to be relaunching the podcast there, and apparently he's got some other projects in the works as well. And hey, I've got another email from him, so let's keep the Tom email train going here with Spawned by the Swamp of the Lost Monster episode. I sought this movie out. Though I could not find a good print, I did find a couple of other interesting movies. Okay, I'm going to interject here. Swamp of the Lost Monster, I really like. It's really difficult to find a great transfer of that film. I don't know why. It's just is one of those ones that has not been given a lot of love over the years, which is too bad because there's some great stuff in it. If you are able to track down a decent transfer of it, highly recommend it. All right, let's continue with the email from Tom. I did find a couple of other interesting movies. One is a Mexican-made Luchadora K. Gordon Murray joint called Doctor of Doom. This is the second movie featuring Lorena Velasquez and Elizabeth Campbell as the wrestling women. Here, they are up against a mad doctor. It has a nice twist, and it was a fun movie. Interjecting again. You're not wrong. It is a fun movie. I actually prefer the first film a little bit more in that... Is it a series? There's only two movies. But I do like the first one a little bit more, but it's still pretty good. Anyway, continuing. The next movie was The Flying Serpent. This is an American-made film starring George Zuko, but has an Aztec theme in that it involves Quetzalcoatl, which I may have mispronounced. Zuko is his usual evil self. This time is a mad archaeologist. The print isn't that great, but it is a super fun movie. Lastly, feeling like I needed more Mexican fun, I rewatched Ship of Monsters. Oh boy, is this an amazingly fun movie. Wow, Lorena Velasquez is back as an alien who falls for a singing cowboy. Comedy ensues. There are monsters too. Some really unique monster designs. But all in all, I love this one a bunch. Thanks for the inspiration. Stay scary, Tom. Okay, so uh, let's talk about The Flying Serpent. It's basically... Um, an Aztecian, Aztecian, Aztec, South of the Border remake of The Devil Bat, pretty much. And I love it for it. I've never talked about The Flying Serpent proper here on the podcast, but I do want to. In fact, Thomas reached out to me relatively recently about being back on the show because there's been a stretch there where I didn't have guests booked ahead of time and that sort of thing. And Tom wants to help out. I appreciate it. He's a good guy. Friend of the show. Friend, you know, just... Good dude. Anyway, he's proposed a handful of different titles to talk about here on the show. And while I haven't responded to him personally, I'm going to say it here on the podcast so that y'all can help me stay accountable. Tom is going to be back on the show in the future to talk about the flying serpent. It's just going to happen at some point in the future, maybe in June. Here's the thing about the flying serpent. It's in the public domain, which is great, which means there are tons of transfers available out there. The downside is that it's in the public domain, which means that there aren't really many companies out there clamoring or wanting to spend a lot of money to restore it and give us a really good transfer of it because it's already out there. It's already kind of saturating the market. Yes, there are people like you and I that would love to have a great restored copy of The Flying Serpent or Ship of Monsters or Swamp of the Lost Monster. So we'll just have to settle for what we have right now. Anyway, Tom, thanks for writing in. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll have you on to talk about the Flying Serpent here in 
the near-ish future. Good evening, Monster Kids. This is the Count. I'm here with some friends to tell you about our favorite board and card game podcast. It's Go Forth and Game. Tom and Ryan talk about all things gaming with special emphasis on interviews with game designers and publishers. What do you think about this, my tall, gaunt friend? Go Forth Game! Good! And what about you, my undead comrade? I think Go Forth and Game is the most entertaining podcast about board and card games that I've come across in 4,522 years. So, if you enjoy listening to two monster kids discuss topics like abstract games, the best family games, game schooling, various game mechanics, and of course, monster-themed games, then you should give Go Forth and Game a try. That's GoForthAndGame.com, available on iTunes and Spotify. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. London from end to end. Even Scotland Yard is baffled. But two men of intrepid daring fight back. It's Abbott and Costello at their hilarious best. Battling fiction's most fearsome themes in Bud Abbott and Lou Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Co-starring Boris Karloff as Robert Louis Stevenson's fabulous double demon. Mr. Hyde will kill him. Mr. Hyde will kill him. With Helen Wesson. Craig Stevens, and Reginald Denny. Bud and Lou are tearing up the town, trapping the beast among a bevy of beauties, adding turmoil to terror in a house of horrors that would frighten even Frankenstein. Come on, we're we can't kill Give me a hand. And what a riot when they get funny notions from deadly potions 
Hey, Slim. What? Those guys must be seeing things. Pay no attention to them. They're drunk. You know, there's always a way of... Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. Sakura 9, an unmanned spacecraft launched to investigate planet Anon, was lost, but suddenly returns under suspicious circumstances in the 16th episode of Ultra 7 the eye that shines in the darkness. Dan, Ann, and Amagi arrive on the scene just in time to witness the explosion of Sakura 9, which had made a controlled descent and landing on Mount Jigokuyama. Meanwhile, a boy named Hiroshi brings an unusual rock down from Jigokuyama, which appears to unleash a crippling sound upon some neighborhood bullies. Hiroshi takes the rock home, where an alien consciousness communicates with him, informing the child that the rock is his body, and he needs Hiroshi's help to reunite with it. In exchange, the alien offers to make Hiroshi the strongest kid on the block, a deal that the youngster readily accepts. Returning the rock to the sulfur and heat of Mount Jigokuyama, Hiroshi and Dan are knocked unconscious as it transforms into a green-eyed, lumbering monster. The Ultra Guard arrives in full force, and Captain Kiriyama has a conversation with the creature, in which it reveals that it is not happy with Sakura 9's exploration near planet Anon, which it perceived as an attack. Dan revives, and becoming Ultra 7, engages in battle with the monster, a battle that ends in an unexpected twist. The eye that shines in the darkness is a reference to alien Anon, who appears as a disembodied eye throughout most of the episode, until it can take kaiju form. After the epic sweep of the Ultra Guard goes west, this is a solid, self-contained story with a distinctive nighttime setting and the added drama of a young boy who just might hold the fate of the world in his hands. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Manson reporting. hysterical, hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs. We just want your heads. Well, oh, well, if you said that in a foot. Our heads? Uncle Anton, the scientific stoop. Oh, oh, oh. Would you like a high cut or a low cut, sir? Oh, I'd like a low cut. Uncle Derek, the medical madman. What is it you're trying to say? Help! Yeah. Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff. I mean business. 
Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler, Grisson, he's gruesome. The family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle. Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential. <laughs> My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery Boys get the heebies, the jeebies, the willies, and the shakes, while you get the laughs of the year. Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50-50. No, no, no. Routine six, Satch. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we will be talking about a new novel written about the making of the original Frankenstein. In FM 102 from October of 1973, a book with a similar theme was announced. The book was written by a Monster Kid Radio guest. Let's hear a portion of that article. Colin and Dwight, Masters of Fright. An inspired combination is passionate scientist and perplexed assistant. What beautiful music they made as Dr. Frankenstein and his feeble-minded, sadistic helper. A fantastic new book has just been published The Frankenstein Legend by Donald F. Glute, a frequent contributor to these pages, and by special arrangement with the author and his publisher, Scarecrow Press, we are able to bring you an exciting excerpt from this thrilling volume which matches the sequence of photos which we have chosen to show you. The article continues with Glute's description of the beginning of 1931's Frankenstein. Let's jump to the end. Karloff himself regarded the creation scene in Frankenstein with remembered fear. The scene where the monster was created, amid booming thunder and flashing lightning, made me as uneasy as anyone. For while I lay half-naked and strapped to Dr. Frankenstein's table, I could see directly above me, the special effects men brandishing the white-hot scissors like carbons that made the lightning. I hoped that no one up there had butterfingers. At last the electrically charged body is lowered to the laboratory floor. Slowly the fingers of the creature move. It's alive. It's alive. Henry shouts again and again. He is seized by unholy emotion, so violently that Waldman and Victor are forced to exert all their combined strength in restraining him. The foregoing feature has been but four pages out of 400 contained in the fabulous volume entitled The Frankenstein Legend which features an absolutely incredible array of facts presented in the style of a popular mystery novel. 
Numerous incredible illustrations include the 1931 poster of Bela Lugosi as Frankenstein, the monster of life without soul, with Hamilton Dean as the stage monster in 1930. A photo of the monster as he appeared in a London legitimate theatre production in 1887 and many other fascinating Frankenstein photos including Lee, Lugosi, Cheney, Strange, Japanese and Spanish Frankensteins, the British television of 1968, etc., etc., there is even a photo of your editor on the outskirts of the town of Frankenstein, USA. In the same issue, there was a short story featuring Frankenstein's monster. It was written by Stephen Utley and Howard Waldrop. It relates Frankenstein's encounter with a group of devil worshippers, preparing a child sacrifice. Let's hear the thrilling conclusion. Hell would have blood this night, but it would not be the child's. At the last possible instant, he stepped forward and let fly with a chunk of stone. It struck the knife wielder full in the face with a crunching smack and hurled him back against the wall behind the dais. The others gasped in unison and wheeled to see the attacker place himself between him and the door. Then, as he strode forward into the uncertain glow of the flickering candles, they began to perceive his form, taking note of the giant frame and mismatched parts, the watery yellow eyes and dust-dry mummy's face, they started to scream. This was not one of the demons upon whom they called, but this was a demon nonetheless. They knew what he was. They knew who he was. Recognition blazed in their eyes as he ripped and broke and flung their bodies about the tallow-lighted cellar. When his rampage was over, he stood panting, alone, amid shattered bone and mangled flesh, the girl on the altar appeared to have fainted, so he removed her bonds, then stroked her arm and face until he saw her eyelids flicker. This time, he thought as he bent over her, this time, perhaps, it will be different. The child opened her eyes, looked straight up into her savior's face and shrieked with horror. Even the children know, he thought bitterly when he left the ruined building and plunged back into the storm. Even the children. The son of Dr. Frankenstein, whose mother was the lightning, lumbered into the limbo of lost souls. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Do your eyes dare witness total terror? Frankenstein meets the space monster. on the screen, America's Missile Might, mobilized against annihilating invaders from outer space. We have come here to this planet for one purpose only, to acquire breeding stuff to repopulate our planet. See the kidnapping of the Earth Maidens for the love-starved slaves of the sterile planet. Very good. We have done well, Nadia. I am pleased, Princess. You are satisfied. I will be satisfied when we have enough more like her to commence Phase 3. See the terrifying invasion of the Beach Party. See 
the United States astro-robot become a creature of death. For the first time, see Earth Horror versus Space Terror. Frankenstein meets the space monster in Futurama. The supernatural powers of the evil eye claim still another victim. Its malevolent enjoyment of tantalizing torture hangs threateningly over John Saxon, Letitia Roman, and Valentina Corteza. Oh, she was always against me! She hated me! Madness. And the maddening aura that destroys reason fills their every breath with the smell of death. Miss Dawson. Have you ever seen a murder before? No, no, I've never seen anything like that. Never. Oh, stop playing games, will you, Landini? I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know that you're, you're involved in this. Perhaps Nora has seen the killer. But how do we know that he hasn't seen her? The evil eye, like relentless tides, reaches out for them. And they defiantly hold ecstasy and horror in their arms and touch lips with terror while the evil eye watches their every kiss and invades their subconscious. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've talked about this on the show in the past, that if I can find a good book that is set during the time of, well, the movies that we talk about here on Monster Kid Radio, specifically a book set during the behind the scenes or the making of said movies, I'm in. I mean, that's half the battle right there. And when I read something like It's Alive, I know that I found somebody who gets it, who does it right, and is apparently writing for me personally. And I'd like to welcome the author to the show. Oh, man, this was such a good read. Welcome to the show, Julian David Stone. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. This was a real treat. And when I first stumbled across a, a banner ad somewhere for It's Alive, and I'm not sure where it was, but I, I looked up your name and I thought, okay, I got to look into this guy. And I found some of your previous work, specifically Justice Girl, which I'd love to talk briefly about as well. And I read that and I got through it like within a week. I just, I loved it. I felt like I was there. So after I read that and I knew It's Alive was coming, I got really excited. And I should probably mention to the listeners, I did get an advanced copy. Uh, I have read it. 
And yeah, it was a real treat. So, Mr. Stone, thank you for that. If nothing else, I wanted to have you on the show to thank you for such a great reading experience. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I'm I'm glad. I'm flattered that you uh, read both of my two published novels, and I'm glad you enjoyed both of them. I, I want to talk a little bit about your history, your your past, your fandom with this type of media. I mean, clearly, you have a love for what we lovingly refer to on the podcast, the genre cinema of yesteryear here on the show. <laughs> Have you been a fan of this type of media for a long time? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my background is as a screenwriter uh, for, for many years. I still live in Los Angeles and I worked uh, for various studios for about 15 years. And when I transitioned to books, you're sort of freed to then write whatever you want. You know, you have to think, Unfortunately, you have to think pretty commercially when you're writing screenplays because a screenplay on its own doesn't, you know, it has no purpose except to be sold or, you know, to be a blueprint for somebody else to make a movie out of it. When I was switched to novels, I got to write the stuff I was passionate about. And you are correct. I'm a, you know, I'm a fanboy going back to, you know, I was the, the, the eight year old making the Aurora models, watching Frankenstein, you know, on a black and white television in the in the late 60s, early 70s. So absolutely, I'm, I'm a big fan of all of it. And it's been so much fun to, to be able to delve into this world of uh, the monster movies that we all love so much. So he's one of us, ladies and gentlemen. He's one <laughs> of us. How, how, how does that go in the movie, Frank? So we accept you, we accept you, one of us, one of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, I, one, one of my favorite expressions that I heard a couple of years ago was, children of the glow referring to the glow in the dark aurora models and i was like that is the greatest title and that is the perfect way to describe sort of this genre of us that sort of found it through the model kits and the movies and everything i just love that children of the glow i have never heard that before but i'm going to start i'm going to co-opt it i'm going to start using it here on the show that's amazing i love that yeah so and, and I'm definitely and also referring to Justice Girl, which it's alive, takes place in the 30s and is about the making of Frankenstein. Justice Girl is, is a story about 50s and live television. And that's another area that I'm passionate about. And my journey to discovering that whole era of live television came from a love of Rod Serling. Because mm. before the Twilight Zone, that's where he got his beginning in this amazing period of about 10 to 15 years after World War II when television was live and what they put on the air was very different than what they put on today and that you know the the story that i told uh with with that novel and rod Serling even turns up as a character too briefly in the strange birth short life and sudden death of justice girl so yeah there was no way i was gonna write that without putting them in there somewhere And and again, that's the fun of writing novels as opposed to screenplays. Not that you can't do that necessarily in a screenplay, but you're just free to go any direction you want. And it's, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed that. You know, as an author myself, I agree with you. It's being able to tell a story with an unlimited budget. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about whether or not somebody's available or if you can pull off that special effect or whatever. You can exactly. do whatever you want with a novel. and. With something like The Strange Birth, Short Life, and Sudden Death of Justice Girl, which I'm probably just going to refer to as Justice Girl through the rest of this. <laughs> uh, it was completely immersive, so much so that I found myself getting a little disappointed when I looked into the history, the real world history, and 
you made Justice Girl up. How dare you, sir? <laughs> it's not real. I wanted to know more about it. Yeah, no, uh, you know, there, there, it's a great period to study, but unfortunately, yeah, Justice Girl, the, the TV show was, was my creation and the whole story that I take, you know, th that I tell in the novel is entirely, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a fictional version of what it was like to be alive and, you know, working in live television in the, in the 50s in New York. There's a lot of television from that era that just doesn't exist today. You know, it wasn't something that was preserved. And if it yeah. did end up on tape or film anywhere, it didn't get preserved after the fact. So what we have now, I find fascinating. You know, we're, we're lucky that we have what we have to this day. But I imagine that there was a certain sense of chaos and figuring things out as they went that went into a lot of the early days of television. And I really picked up on that in the oh, Justice great. Girl novel. What kind of research do you do for something like Justice Girl or even It's Alive? One, you know, obviously with It's Alive, there's quite a body of research on, you know, the, the Universal Monster movies. The, the live television area, much to my disappointment has kind of been forgotten i was able to talk to a few people who and unfortunately i wrote the novel about 10 years ago even in that time they've passed away and it was amazing talking to them because not a to a person none of them wanted it to end videotape comes in in 1957 you know meaning from the the end of world war ii in 45 when television really exploded in the post-war era to 57 it was live and it was so exciting working that and the control they had because there was much less potential for advertisers and people like that to to mess with the shows because once it was running it's like saturday night live it's live doesn't mean they didn't try to and my story deals with that but you were more in control of the content you know they were they were they were editing it basically live so that was that was a part of the research i was able to talk to people and i read there's a lot of oral histories that the television academy has done but like you said so much has been lost you know the only way to record television until 1957 was to set up a movie camera and film it off of a tv screen it's called a kinescope and thankfully there is a good number of those but so many shows have have disappeared um and, it, and it's really you know it's upsetting and i sort of i i implore any of your 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 listeners to go out and look for the stuff so much of it is on youtube it's just fascinating because even though it was done live they did so many incredibly complex things. They were flying walls out, moving cameras. Like that, that's what's so exciting about it. And like you said, added to the, to the chaos of it. Um, in the case of It's Alive, a lot of my research was I hired a couple of researchers to look for stuff for me. But what I also did, which is something that I, I love to do in the case of both of these projects, is I love reading history in the time period, contemporaneous stuff. So with It's Alive, I started reading, you know, the movie magazines from 1931 just to read what was going on. And also um, because I was very specifically writing about Universal Studios and the Universal Monster movies and Frankenstein, Universal published a, a ma an in-house magazine called the Universal Weekly. So that was very helpful, too, although with one, one uh, sort of sad or, or tragic thing it ceased publication from 1930 to 1932 right when dracula and frankenstein oh no yeah oh, that's terrible yeah. timing guys come on yeah yeah it was because the beginning of the depression so it because 
I mean, it's so fun reading it because it's, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is hyperbole, but it's written for the exhibitors and the uh, movie theater owners to get excited about the upcoming movies. So you can track a project all the way through, you know, because they're always talking about it. So-and-so has signed to do this. So unfortunately, there's a big gap, you know, in, in what Universal was doing. But then there's stuff afterwards, you know, by the time it uh, production begins again on or, or, or starts again with the Universal Weekly, those movies have become hits. So they're referred to as, you know, successes and stuff like that. But unfortunately, that one, uh, that was kind of a that was kind of too bad that there was no Universal Weekly during that period. But the newspapers were following it like they do today. And that's what I love reading is the contemporary contemporaneous history. Uh, I've got a book here called A Million and One Nights that talks about the history of the motion picture, but mm-hmm. it came out like in the late twenties, early thirties. So <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how much hi- they got a lot of history out of it because it's a big, thick phone book of a book. So to read something like that, that just to kind of get in there and see that firsthand, I guess maybe secondhand because it's somebody reporting on it as it's happening, uh, experience or lens on what's going on uh, with the film industry at the time is fascinating to me. And I definitely, again, I'm going to heap a lot of praise on your book. I got that vibe from It's Alive. I really enjoyed it. And you know, I'm a monster kid. I've been doing this show for a while now, and I've been loving these movies for even longer ever since I first discovered them as a kid. I love these movies, and I know these names. I know Karloff and Lugosi, and then, you know, as time goes along, I learn about what happened with Flory, and then I know the names like Mm -hmm. Lemley and Universal and all these other things going on. You know, I, I feel like I know them. What It's Alive did for me was it paint characters and then don't call them characters like Karloff or Lugosi with a paintbrush that gave them a certain sense of life that you don't get from certain documentaries or uh, retrospective articles or, or magazines or other biographical books. It, it gives them, no pun intended, life <laughs> <laughs> in a way that I haven't experienced before. And oh, good. I loved that, and it it turned reading It's Alive into an experience for me where I didn't feel like I was just reading a recap of how Frankenstein was made, because we all know how Frankenstein was made as fans of this stuff. Instead, it became a new experience for me, and I don't know if I'm making much sense here, if I'm really explaining it the best way that I could. You're, you're the published writer with more history than I, I have, so you're probably better at words <laughs> than I am. Uh, uh, but it, it definitely turned what Karloff was going into or, or going through into kind of like a, her- a little mini hero's journey. What Lugosi was going mm-hmm. through, uh, what Lemley Jr. was going through. And, and Lemley Jr. is probably somebody I don't know as much about. So to have him as one of, if not the viewpoint character of the book, was fascinating to me. That was kind of sort of going on everything you said. That was kind of my goal. There are a lot of books that are nonfiction about the making of Frankenstein, Universal Monsters. I wanted to, to write a novel because I love these movies so much and I wanted to try to, and, and it, I'm very gratified that you've responded the way you have, because I wanted to be in Jack Pierce's makeup room. You know what I mean? I wanted to, oh, oh, to be there for the filming. So to be able to just, you know, to try to bring that, that, that world to life was, was so much fun. You know, they say, People often write books they want to read. Sure. <laughs> to some extent, you know, I, I'm a monster kid. I wanted to I wanted to have this experience. And 
my my journey with these movies, like I said, you know, I started, uh, you know, watching them as, as a young kid. And then for about 20 years, you know, I, I sort of you know grew up. I got into the film business. I was a screenwriter. I rediscovered them about 20 years ago and seeing them as an adult was a completely different experience. And I became quite taken with them and I started looking into, you know, all of the, the stuff that had been written about them. And that's where I, you know, I knew Karloff and Lugosi. But when I stumbled across Junior Lemley, that these films started with this 21-year-old kid who gets put in charge of Universal Studios in 1929. Nobody else wants to make these movies, and he's the one that does want to make them. I mean, just as a writer, you know, that's where your head sort of explodes, and you go, okay, this is amazing. And then I started looking into him, and he's so fascinating because he's, younger obviously than almost all the other studio heads and he's a product of the 20s where most of the other ones obviously had lived through the 20s but they were older and junior is very much the you know almost like the the 20s college kid you know talking about pep and you know (laughs) he he, he talks with that 20s lingo and and Mm -hmm. if you you know in interviews in the new york times and and he's just an amazing character and it was entirely him that wanted to make these movies in fact I was talking about with the Universal Weekly when it starts production again in 32, there's a quote from his father where he says these movies were all junior. And he says, you know, I, I didn't want to make them. And he did. And that's, you know, part of the story that I tell that it's, it's a great father and son story, which is a great parallel to Frankenstein, because as I like to say, what is Frankenstein ultimately, but a, fa- a form of a father and son story. It's a, it's a creator who's disappointed with his creation. And that, you know, that type of parallel, all of that is what sort of came together as I sort of dwelled into it um, and started working on it. I could have spent so much time in this world, and I suppose I can if I do the research and find more, you know, first hand or second hand documents, but I could have spent so much more time in this world and just being in that chaos of this guy who is trying so hard to bring Universal into the future. Without yeah. putting a dog in the script, you know, into the future. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that's read the book. You'll know what I'm talking about, listeners. Yeah. Uh, you know, trying so hard to push things forward while still kind of respecting what Universal was and where it came from. And if listeners, if you don't know anything about how Universal was started, seriously, look into Carl Lemley's story, what he did, how he was involved. Yeah. You know, moving from the East Coast, coming out west, uh, kind of his kind of sort of entanglement with the Edison folks and all that. Just, just really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. But this book isn't about that. It's about Lindley, uh Junior, about Junior, called Junior by everybody, and how it's so much more than just, you know, a nepotism kind of situation where the son of the founder gets to do all this stuff. He really, in your book, is hopping all over town, trying to make things happen when suddenly it's time to make Frankenstein in a week because dad's in town. Right. <laughs> There's this bouncing from place to place to place. Got to make phone calls. Got to go see Lugosi. He's not around. Well, whatever. Let's go see Karloff and let's make a call <laughs> right. to Florian. Oh, man, we upset James Whale. Let's get that taken care of. There's this energy that I felt like is a little reminiscent from what you were doing with Justice Girl in Junior. And I loved uh. that. Yeah, th- there's no question that there is, is a the main character in Justice Girl, the, the, the young writer, there is a parallel to junior and in fact you know that may have been some of the attraction to the story the similarity of sort of this young guy full of energy you know bopping around inside of an exciting world you know the 50s in new york the post-war era i'm i'm 
way too young to have been there, but you know, it sounds really exciting. And this period in the film business in LA, just, you know, when you read about it, it sounds so amazing with this emerging industry and sound has just come in. So the movies have just really become what we think of them now. And, and it's just a very exciting time. And junior was very much that where his father was, you know, was, was older, a little more conservative in his approach to the type of movies. And junior just wanted to, you know, wanted to turn universal into this real powerhouse, making really cutting edge films. And luckily for us, Frankenstein and Dracula were, were two of those films. Right. Uh, I think now it's, it's kind of a given that when you think about what the studios were known for when they first got started and Warner brothers had their crime and their gangster stuff and MGM mm -hmm. had the musicals and universal had the monsters. Right. Despite Carl Emily senior, <laughs> yeah. not really being a monster guy no, no not at all and, and as you said he's a fascinating character because you know he was known as uncle carl he's if you mm -hmm. look at footage of him photos he seems like this genial guy but my god like you sort of referred to the things this guy did and, and in a lot of ways like he's he's almost an enigma to me his father because i can't jibe what he did with who he seems to be where the other guys you know, from that period who were running the other studios, you read their backstories, you get it. You know, mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. tough guys from the street, you know, who came up, you know, they were immigrants fighting their way through. And what's interesting about Carl Sr. is from the moment he's born through his whole life, he's always middle class. Like he doesn't start, doesn't enter the film business until he's in his early 40s. And at the time, he's incredibly successful. He's in Wisconsin. He works for a successful department store. He's well ensconced in the society of, uh, of the town he lives in, and he's a successful person. These other guys were kind of, you know, they were definitely had, had more, they had higher decline. So it's just, I've always found him a real fascinating character because in a lot of respects, he, he did more than any of the other studio his and in what he started with to where he ended up, you know, he created, he built Universal Studios out here in 1915. And a thing I love to tell people that as soon as he opened that studio in 1915, that's when the tours started. Like he had the vision for that, you know, over a hundred years ago. The Universal tour is not new. It goes back a hundred and, you know, almost 110 years. So he, he was a fascinating character. You could get a button. The Universal Studios is in the Valley here in Los Angeles. And even in 1915, you could take a bus from Hollywood Boulevard to drive you to take the studio tour back then. It was different than today. There was no, you know, none, none of the huge animatronic shows and all that stuff. <laughs> There's no but Jaws could, ride. <laughs> no, no Jaws ride, no bridge that, you know, no flood, no bridge. But interestingly, what you could do is you could watch them make movies because there was no sound. So it's not like today if you've ever been on the tram when those red lights start flashing and they stop driving the tram because they're actually filming in one of those studios. Uh, then they had literally, they built, and this is part of the story, they built uh, bleachers for people to watch them make all of these different, you know, they had it lined up like you'd be, you'd see a comedy being shot next to a drama, next to a romantic film, and people would sit in the bleachers and watch uh, the films being made. And that that's the Universal Studios that Carl Sr. created. By the time Junior gets put in charge, they've built sound stages, they're making sound, and the other studios are starting to make very sophisticated movies, and that's the direction that Junior wanted to push, you know, Universal in, and, and, and what he did do. 
one of the things that I love, you know, as a writer, as a reader, is that, yeah, you know, you've got the unlimited budget. You can tell whatever story you want. But there is a certain sense of magic, uh, of time travel, of just immersion in a world when it's done right. And that's one of the things that I loved about It's Alive. That's one of the things that I love about some of my other favorite books set during this time period or using these real-life people as characters, is that there is this immersion in a world that, man, just feels vibrant. There's a hecticness to it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on, but there's just this energy. And again, It's Alive's got a lightning bolt on the cover, so yeah, you know, it's got energy. But, <laughs> you know, there's this sense of energy to what's happening in the book, and it just never stops. It never let me go. I... I said I read the whole thing. I read it in a very short period of time. Uh, it it had me, and the first time I sat down to read the book, it's like, okay, I've got this interview coming up. They sent me an advanced copy. I want to read this. I got halfway through it before I was like, oh, yeah, I've got other things i got to get done today. You know, I was just <laughs> caught up in it because there is this almost nonstop pace with Junior doing everything that he can to get the movie made, get his father's approval, Will he get the promotion that he really, really, really wants? Right. Is he going to smooth things over with everybody? What is Legosi going to do now? You know, are we going to get Flory back? I don't know. You know, whatever. We're going to get a screen test with Karloff. What? What? You know, there's just so much stuff happening that it just never lets up. And I could have spent another 100, 200 pages in this world, man. <laughs> uh, I, I could too, you know. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, 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 like I said, I just, I had so much fun writing it and I like to, you know, I like to, I, I like the style of the writing to sort of fit what I feel is going on. You know, it, it takes place over a limited number of days and it's, you know, they're trying, like you said, they're trying to get this all figured out before Frankenstein starts shooting, uh, you know, which is again, sort of based on the historical facts because there's no mentions until the first day of shooting is the first time you see anything, uh, you know, that says that Karloff will be the monster. In fact, in the book, it starts with three pages of quotes. Those are all yeah. real. All of the newspaper quotes that you see that are in there are all real. I did make those up. So you can see what was going on where, you know, eight months in advance, it's going to be Lugosi, that it may not be Lugosi. And then there's the famous letter that James Whale wrote to Colin Clive just as he's getting off the boat on his way to come to Hollywood uh, from the, uh, from the United Kingdom to star in Frankenstein, where it's two weeks before production. And the director of the film is saying it's either going to be Bela Lugosi or Boris Karloff playing the monster. So you can see they were, they were still trying to figure it out, you know, wh who was going to play this role. And, you know, thankfully, you know, not, nothing against Lugosi. I love Bela Lugosi. All these people in this book are my heroes, but, the performance that Karloff gives in Frankenstein, I think is one of the greatest in the history of movies. I, I, I cannot watch that film without that performance. It just floors me because we all know Boris Karloff's personality. You know, he did, he became so famous after the film and you just don't see any of it in Frankenstein. It is a complete transformation to this, this wonderful character of the monster. And, you know, this is something that has been written about that makes it sort of unique is that, you know, he's just not going around and, and destroying things that there's a tremendous amount of empathy for him. And that's the complexity of the performance that Karloff gives. And, you know, Lugosi is amazing in the stuff he does, but I don't know if he would have gone that way with it 
it, it's hard to tell. You know what we don't know. You know, yeah. listeners to the show know that I'm I'm firmly on Team Bela. I love Bela Lugosi. So I, I will watch a Lugosi film, and it doesn't matter how quote unquote good or bad it is. I'm going to enjoy it because I love what Lugosi did. Mm -hmm. But in so many cases, and you mentioned this as well, Lugosi really didn't Americanize. He really stayed true to his Hungarian roots. And because of that, I feel like he was a lot of times viewed by the general public as an outsider, a foreigner. He wasn't one of them. And sometimes that worked, you know, Dracula works great, right. but he didn't submerge himself in the roles the way Karloff did. Um, it, 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 it doesn't seem so. And what's also interesting and what, what I was trying to tell in, in this story, because the, all of the characters come out of this, out of Frankenstein going in vastly different directions than where they started because, you know, from after Frankenstein comes out, Karloff is a star for the rest of his life. As we all mm -hmm. know, Lugosi continued to make movies, but the quality of them tended to vary over the years. And he struggled a lot. And like you said, one of the beliefs is because of his, his accent, it was sort of mm -hmm. limited what roles he could play. But he, he, he always seemed a little uncomfortable in, you know, when he was sort of interviewed to me, you know, and some of it may have been the language where Karloff always seemed very comfortable in his skin, you know, uh, com coming out of this experience. And what uh, Frankenstein, but what is also interesting is going in, it was the exact opposite. Lugosi was the one who had pretty much, you know, he was very successful in Hungary at a very young age as, a, as an actor, and then obviously served in the war, but then came came to the United States and relatively quickly found success on the stage to the point that he was on Broadway as Dracula. So he comes, you know, he's a star before Frankenstein gets made after, after both the stage and the movie version of Dracula. And Karloff is the unknown. And pretty much after the movie, it kind of goes the other way. I mean, Lugosi obviously continued to make films throughout the thirties and they were paired together nine, nine times after, mm -hmm. after, after uh, Frankenstein. But, the trajectory of them kind of went in different directions as the thirties came to an end for better or worse. You're absolutely right. Um, because yeah. I, I love, I love Lugosi. I will watch a Lugosi Ed Wood film. Yeah. I will watch a Lugosi poverty row film. I love them. Yeah. Oh, I love them too. But it's always Lugosi that I'm watching as opposed to, yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm no disrespect, no disrespect to Lugosi at all. Um, yeah, it, really love really good, but, it, it's such a joy watching him in an Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein because it's such a big budget movie, you know, and he's yeah. great. And, and it's such a joy to see him back dealing with that type of a budget. You know, some of the universal stuff he did with Karloff was pretty high budget and other things, too. But that one in particular, it's such a joy to see him as Dracula in mm -hmm. such a, a well-made film. And, and, you know, beyond that, it's you know, I love that movie, too, for any number of reasons. But oh, it's fantastic. That, it, yeah. Yeah. But that's part of it. Speaking of Lugosi and Karloff, did you have any contact with the families or the estates trying to research these characters? Do you know what they were, uh, what their impression of, of your impression of their family or their ancestors were? <laughs> Didn't have any contact. I did talk to a relative of juniors. Um, okay. It was, okay. The Carl Levely line, unfortunately, has no direct descendants. He had two children. He had Junior and a sister, who's also a character in it. The sister had a child, but that child never had any children, and Junior never married and never had any children. So unfortunately, there's no direct relative, but 
as I referred to, there were a lot of Lemley relatives and there is the, uh, you know, other Lemleys that are out here. And I did talk to uh, one of them who was very helpful. And she actually remembers talking to Junior on the phone in the 70s when she was very young. She never met him, but uh, but she did have that experience. And she had sort of had a little bit of archive of stuff that, that she was very kind to share with me um, because I, I, I'm just so enamored of these characters. And I, I enjoyed making them also human in the best possible way. These were people who had lives who were trying to succeed in a very tough business at a very exciting time where a lot is happening in the business they've chosen. Sound is just coming in and it affected all of the care, you know, affected everybody in Hollywood in particular, these characters. And I think it had a big effect on the universal monster cycle. You know, th think of Dracula with the creaking doors and what would Frankenstein be without the sound of the storm or, you know, the electricity. It's so powerful. So this was the time for these movies, again, no pun intended, as you said, to come alive because they, <laughs> they, they could be fully realized. You know, there was German expressionism and other sort of early horror films that, that we now call them horror films. They weren't called that then. Um, that are wonderful, but they're, to me, it becomes fully realized when you add the element of sound. Mm -hmm. I'm a sound guy. I mean, I, I do a podcast. I've done you know, sound <laughs> effects works for independent film and, and all of that. I do a lot of audio work, and I agree with you. There, there is a lot to be said for what sound did for what we now call these horror movies, these monster movies. Yeah. You even spotlight that a little bit uh, in the book towards the beginning when uh, Lemley, when Junior approaches Whale to say, hey, Karloff's back in. Right before that, there's a sequence, an interaction where Whale has Junior put on a set of headphones to listen to what he's created. Not just the set design and how wonderful it is, but to actually just hear it. Right. And, and the thud and the, the scraping of the shovel going into the, the dirt at the graveyard. Right. I, mean, well, that, I can that's... hear that in my head. I mean, as I'm reading yeah. it, I'm hearing it. That's, that, that's so true. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's one of the, the remarkable, you know, things that we're all so lucky for, that Whale was chosen as, you know, as the director of Frankenstein. You know, I, I love Dracula, but Frankenstein is a, a little bit more complex in the way that it's shot, you know. The, mm -hmm. And again, I don't want to take Dracula is wonderful, but it, it, they sort of get exponentially, you know, sort of better. Like Frankenstein is far more sophisticated than Invisible Man. You know, as you get through those first five or six, of the ones that were made when junior was running the studio, they're the real foundation of the entire cycle. And, you know, frankly, all of, of really modern horror is started in the, in that, that wonderful five or six years when junior sure. is running universal and, and, you know, the, the, the films are just so wonderful. And luckily it was, you know, I, I, I always like to say that it's the combination of two people, you know, junior is the one overseeing it. And, and wanting to make them. But the, the two contributions in those first five films to me are obviously James Whale and Carl Freund, because you, you have this oh. wonderful, you have this wonderful combination of German expressionism, which is Freund and, and James Whale with his sort of English sensibility. So, you know, you, you don't end up with, again, amazing films like Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Calgary and those things but they're very dark movies and they're sort of unrelenting where mm -hmm. these movies are dark, but then there's this wonderful humor to them. And that's the, the, what whale brought to it. So to me, it's the combination of two that of the two of them that really sets the stage for the entire cycle. 
because mm-hmm. Thorndahl directed the mummy. He shot Dracula, but he he was the DP of Dracula, but he directed the mummy. And then Whale obviously directed, you know, Frankenstein, Invisible Man, and Bride. So they're they're really sort of the authors to me of those first five movies that set the tone for the entire cycle. Sure, and and to be clear, listeners, I'm not disparaging Dracula at all when I say this, but. Todd Browning's directing style was a lot more stagey <laughs> and, and a lot, yeah. for lack of a better term, creaky in time at times when it came to what he was doing with Dracula. I love Dracula. It's phenomenal. Whale was a well, much more dynamic director. He, he was, and it was also out of fairness to, to Todd Browning. It's the big, you know, sound is just coming in. So they're still very quickly, they're learning how to work with sound, you know, if you, if you ever want to see like a great example of what that, you know, the, the, the revolution of sound was singing in the rain, you mm-hmm. know, just an amazing film is about that. The transition, the transition to sound. And even though it's a very light musical, they actually get the stuff about sound very correct in that, you know, in the beginning, when it first came in, the camera had to be locked in this room, you know, co- you know, cause it was so loud and it took a while for the technology to catch up. So even in the difference in the time between Dracula being shot in, I think Dracula's late 1930 and Frankenstein is uh, sort of two thirds of the way through 1931. They had, they had developed more technology. So whale had a few more tools to work with. And also mm-hmm. he just, I, I think he had come, he wasn't as he was newer to filmmaking where Browning had been making silence. So I think there was, you know, there's sort of that, that wonderful thing where you haven't learned a certain way to do it, which is a, I think, you know, that's one of the things that Junior liked about him was that he wasn't sort of trapped in the past. He was a filmmaker that he thought was of the future. And again, not, you know, Browning's work is amazing. He'd just been working for a long time. So he was more locked into the way that you shot films more in the silent era. And that's one of my favorite things to do when I watch like an older film from like the the, the 30s is to see where they hit the microphone. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Because a lot of times it's it's pretty obvious when when the actors are leaning a particular direction on screen <laughs> yeah. for no reason. It's like, oh, that's where the, the microphone is. That's where everything's at. So, Well, and, you know, the other thing about, you know, sound comes in at the end of really explodes with the jazz singer in 27 mm-hmm. and then very quickly, you know, asserts everything. And by 29 and 30, that's all they're making. The, the silent film is dead. But it's really not until 1932 or 33 that you can look at a film and go, the, the relationship of sound to the to the picture is what we're used to because you know what what was the sound movie nobody really knew when they started like would audiences want to hear music like nobody knew if that was it or do they just want sound effects they want dialogue and it was about 32 33 if you watch those films you go okay that you know it'll look old it'll look like almost a hundred year old film but the relationship of oh here's the music coming in you know here's the dialogue you know the the, the grammar of how it would all work out took until about then to, to sort of be worked out. And, and it's yeah. still similar to today. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you watch Dracula and you have very little music throughout the entire movie. You've got the opening music and uh, apparently Universal loved it so much they use it again in The Mummy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, or, or they had the rights to it. <laughs> yeah. Right, that, that too. Um, and you even look at some of the makeup, you know, when, when yeah. we first meet, you know, Dwight Fry, he very much looks like he's wearing almost silent movie makeup, mm-hmm. you know? And so there's still, there's still remnants of the silent era where by the time you get to Frankenstein, 
it feels like a more modern film. And like you said, Wales photography and everything is a little more sophisticated and the sound effects and everything have kind of moved to, to another level. Definitely. And that's something else that I kind of picked up on in It's Alive is that, sure, it's a story about Junior trying to make the movie and, and Karloff's rise and Lugosi, uh his ego, I guess, getting in the way of becoming, <laughs> you know, the Frankenstein monster. But like most good movies of this era, kind of in the background, you're seeing the history, you're seeing this kind of mini documentary view of what the business was really like and what's mm -hmm. happening and how chaotic and dynamic things are, are, are happening so quickly in the background. That, oh, yeah. And I, and I love that too. And you can definitely tell you did your research on that, not just, Hey, who was Karloff, but mm -hmm. what was happening around Karloff? What was happening in the film? And I loved that. Well, that, and you know, that, that's interesting that you bring that up. That was kind of the big breakthrough. I'd been working on the on and off on this for a number of years. Okay. And it was, I, I wrote an earlier draft that, that I finished about, oh, four or five years ago, and it, and it didn't really work. And I finally had this epiphany. I said, the problem is I'm, I focused my research and reading and everything too much on the monster movies. I need to look at the entire business um, of what was going on. And that's when I sort of pulled back and I started watching everything I could get my hands on from like, you know, 1929, 1930 and 1931. I said, I need to, you know, this is something I sort of say when, when I'm doing research, when I finally feel ready to write the story, I like to say I can wear an era. Like I, mm. I didn't know enough of the era. I was too focused on the monster movies. And that's when I started looking at everything else and watching what the other studios were making and I, like I was saying earlier, I love contemporaneous stuff uh, for research. So I literally read every movie magazine from no, like oh, late 1930 man. to 1931, you know, and there would be no mention of the monster movies. I just wanted to get the sense of what the business was like. And it was so, you know, like, like everything is exactly the same as today. You know, it's the rise of different actors, the fall, and then you'll see you know, uh, this person's having a scandal and that person, you know, all, all of it. And it was just a great way to track what was going on, reading the, the movie magazines and the trades of the period and the LA times, all of that just gave you a sense of what, you know, what was going on. And that's what I tried to get into the book. So it sounds like what I need to do just for my own personal, I don't know, getting out of paying as many taxes as I normally pay. <laughs> decide that I'm going to write a book during this period of time and then spend all this extra money and resources on quote unquote researching <laughs> yeah, and then use it as a tax write-off. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, it, it's legitimate, you know, it's, it's fun to get know, to watch know, a lot yeah. of great movies, but you know, it, it is interesting. You know, I have stacks of those old, you know, movie magazines from 30 and 31. I, oh, I'm wow. also somebody who prefers to hold something physically from the time if you can, you know, if you can find it and it's not too expensive, um, tracking down the universal weeklies was, was a whole other thing. Cause they're tough to find, particularly those, you know, like I said, there's those two years that are missing, but I wanted stuff from 29 and 30 and those are the hardest to find. I don't know if they've cut back production, but, um, all of that just is, you know, to be reading and holding something that is from the time of junior and Karloff and Lugosi. It's just, it's just great. It's so, it feels, it's so powerful. You know, just talking to you now and hearing you talk about that, my, my level of respect for you as an author has gone up because <laughs> in, in a similar situation, 
I would get so bogged down in reading all of that and absorbing that. You were able to cut yourself off and then, okay, now I've got to write about it. No, no. Well, I, <laughs> well no, that, that's very funny that you did that uh, or that you said that. It, it is tough because I could go on re researching forever and then sort of my neuroses take over. I'm like, okay, you got to sit down and start writing. But but I did, like I said, I finished an earlier draft and, and, and literally that, that was really the epiphany. I said, that's what's wrong you don't know enough about this industry. You're writing to, you know, you, you need to expand this to make a bigger story about the business at the time, as opposed to just the making of this one film. And that's when I, I, I dwelled in deeper, but it's hard. I, I, I do love the research. There's no question that, that <laughs> you know, researching Justice Girl was a blast, you know, finding people that, that had been alive then and interviewing them and all of that. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh man, the book itself is a lot of fun. It comes out uh, here in a few weeks, and do you know will there be an audio version of it as well? Uh, I know the, Justice there, Girl had an Audible release. Yeah, so no. Yeah, absolutely. On May seventeenth, the book comes out, and on that same day, you can get it as an ebook or as an audio book. you can pre-order all three of them right now, so they're they're ready to go. And on May seventeenth, it'll it'll all be available. I'll make sure there's links in the show notes to this, of course, as well as to your website. Because I want people okay. to be able to know how to track this down and, and you know get on Thank it you. and get into it. Because I I do like to promote, well, the stuff that I like here on Monster Kid Radio. I don't just blindly say, okay, this guy wrote a book that's kind of tangentially related or whatever. I want to promote from within. You know, we're Monster Kids. I want to make sure the Monster Kids are doing well, especially when they're doing great work like this. So please, well, listeners, you. check it out. Check out the show notes to find where you can pick up your own copy of It's Alive. May 17th is when it comes out. Before I let you go, there is something that we do on every episode of Monster Kid Radio I'd like to do with you, sir. We have sure. a game that we play called the Classic Five. Uh, I have a literal deck of cards here that I've created, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no wrong answers. It's an icebreaker. It's a game. It's just a way to get Monster Kids talking about their favorite topic, monster movies. Sure. How do you feel about playing a round of the Classic Five with us today, sir? Let, let's give it a shot. That sounds All right. great. All right, here we go. And I'm specifically, because of the subject matter of It's Alive, I'm going to specifically pull from the universal expansion deck that we have here. So stay on theme, I guess, is what I'm getting at. So, all right, here we go. Card number one, question number one. What is your favorite Karloff Lagosi universal collaboration? Uh, probably the Black Cat. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. Uh, if you ever do talk to Sarah Karloff about that one, though, um, be prepared for a Oh, so you like to see my dad get skinned alive, huh? Kind of response. Uh, <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, card number two. Imhotep, Karis, or Claris? Who's your favorite mummy? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, probably Imhotep. In the first film? Yeah. Karloff's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Just, just that, you know, even though he only appears for, what, about 20 seconds in the full mummy makeup, but, you know, it's so good, you know. Oh. It's, it, it, yeah, so uh, good. Jack Pierce, you know, the man was, yeah. was a master. Yeah. All right, card number three, in your opinion, what is the most underrated Universal monster movie? Oh, uh, boy, that's a hard one because they're so... Uh, maybe Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Okay, because, you know, yeah, maybe that one. 
you know, I'm, I, as I recall, it has a really stunning opening shot. Isn't that the, the really the two guys going into the mausoleum? <laughs> Is, is that correct? Am I getting that? You know, sometimes I get the later ones oh, a little confused. I, I was going to say, are you sure you haven't listened to a lot of episodes of Monster Kid Radio? Because I talk about that all the time. Oh, that is my, I love that sequence. For my oh, money, okay. that is the best, absolute best resurrection from the dead sequence I've ever seen. Oh, well, that there you go. I, I actually oh. did, did, yeah. So that that has always kind of stuck. The, the one thing I will say about the, the cycle of the movie that I love is that even in the ones that are lesser, good there's always one cool sequence like even in and, and i'm not saying necessarily that there isn't other good stuff in frankenstein with the wolfman but there even in the you know let, let's say the invisible woman you know some of the lesser ones there's always one sequence that you go okay that's kind of neat that's kind of cool you know sure e- e- even like son of dracula which isn't the most well-regarded one that scene where he kind of glides across the water oh, i always man. thought that, that was so cool like it, it's just and the way that that Lon Chaney Jr. sort of acts it. I, I love that part. And yeah. I find that there's always something in, in all of them that, that I find. Yep. Yeah. All right, card number four. Who do you prefer, Fritz or Igor? <laughs> Boy, that's a tough one. Because Lugosi is so good in Son of uh, Frankenstein. Um, God. I, I have to go with Igor then. I got to go with Bella. He's the, you know, I love Dwight Fry, but he's not a character in my book. So, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap up with this final question. If you could have sure. been on set, if you could have been on set during the production of a classic Universal monster movie, which one wow. would it have been? Oh boy, I, I think I have to go with Frankenstein. You know, just, just you know what? It, I, I'll go with Frankenstein, and uh, I'll go with you know the the scene if i could have been there one day it's it's carla or, or the frankenstein's introduction you know back into oh, the doorway yeah. so powerful but so amazing just unbelievable it really yeah. is it really yeah, is so that, it would have been that film and that day <laughs> so i can't believe i forgot that fritz got killed in front that that's unbelievable because I've, <laughs> I've i've watched them so many times and i i don't tend to watch them in order you know, so it's like I, you know, and I've been I've been sort of rewatching stuff lately, and uh, yeah, he, he's not in Bride, of course. He got killed you know, in Frankenstein. Yeah. To this day, I still get House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula mixed up every once in a while. And yeah. don't get me started on the Mummy sequels. I cannot tell you what order those four films came out in. Uh, exactly, I know. Because, like I said, I've been trying to sort of catch up on a lot of this stuff, and yeah, the Mummy sequels are t- are tough, and even some of the Abbott and Costello you know, movies, I forget which was shot, you know, first and second, you know, cause I, I love those too. Sure. Sure. I can tell you like the first two and the last, but there's yeah. a handful of others in there that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that's kind of what I, I, the cycle is so amazing because you start with the original films that are when Junior's there, then they make the sequel, then they make the mashup, you know, where they start putting them all together and then they do the comedy. And then yeah. just when the, that, but then when it's done, it's like you think it's over. They come back with sort of a mini cycle with Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh it's yeah, Creature is my favorite film, so I'm not going to argue there. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Creature is amazing. It's it's an absolute. It's funny. I'm sitting in my in my bedroom looking at a Creature from the Black Lagoon one sheet as we're doing this interview. So oh. I'm a fan too. So. Yeah, I've got a reproduction of the one sheet in my office, right, like right behind me. So yeah. <laughs> did Did you ever meet Julie Adams? 
Uh, multiple times. Um, I oftentimes have referred to her on my podcast as my 50s girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> but I, I met her a few times um, over the years, had her on the show and ran into oh, various terrific. conventions and all that. She was such an amazing woman. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, her it, son's, it, yeah, it's just, yeah. Oh, well, we're going to know. I've met her son too. What were you going to say about him? Because he worked oh, just, in, I think, I think he's did, an assistant did, editor. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say he's great too. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if he's out there doing much now that Julie has passed in terms of like going to conventions and all that, but he was also yeah. amazing. So, well, it's funny. She actually has a connection to Justice Girl um, because a very good friend of mine knew her. They had uh, her family, she had rented a property from, this this friend of mine's family so i had lunch with her and it was initially about her experience of doing live television because she went back to that era mm -hmm. and in fact her then partner the person she was with uh, uh i don't think they ever got married but uh uh the person she was with had was the director during the era of live television so i interviewed him extensively so that's a connection back to the horror films uh, uh or justice girl uh to the horror films with her and i of course you know eventually had to talk to her about creature from the black lagoon so, oh yeah so, yeah i couldn't i couldn't resist yeah and she was always so uh welcoming to anybody fanboying over <laughs> creature yeah. with her uh, i always yeah. tried to bring up something different when i first talked to her it's like so tell me about this western but what about creature <laughs> you know so <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah oh wow yeah um I have a feeling that you and I could sit here and talk about monster <laughs> movies and yeah. live TV and all of this and writing and everything else for hours. But I've had you on the phone now for about an hour and uh, I want to let you get back to whatever it is you got going on. Hopefully another book is in the <laughs> works. Uh, you know, do you have anything coming up? I, I do. I'm actually about halfway through my next novel, which deals with the, uh, another huge passion of mine, the space race, uh, <gasps> the Apollo moon. Oh, missions in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm a, a kind of a fanatic for that too, so that's the one I'm about halfway through. Well, while there probably aren't any monsters in that story, I'd love to hear more <laughs> about it. And I I think the space race really contributed to a lot of the sci-fi films that we talk about uh, oh, here good, on the good. show. So I'd be I'd love to have you back on down the line. Oh, anytime. This has been an absolute joy. It's it's really fun talking to you. Now, like I said, I'm sure if nothing else, we can find a monster movie to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So JulianDavidStone.com is where people are going to want to go. Uh, like I said, links in the show notes over to uh, Amazon and you know a few other places as well to pick up the books. Check out Justice Girl. Really good. Pre-order. It's alive. It's great. Julian, thank you for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Just a, a lot of fun talking to you. <laughs> Here we are at the end of this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you to Kenny, to Mark, to Tom, and especially to Julian for being part of the show this week. I have been really excited to talk about It's Alive here on the show. Please consider checking it out. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to the author's website, as well as a link to where you can pick it up on Amazon as a pre-order. It'll go through the Amazon affiliate link, so you're helping Monster Kid Radio out if you pick it up that way as well. You can also pick it up as an audiobook or an ebook, like he talked about as well. We don't get a kickback on those two things, but I'm more excited about you being able to consume and enjoy and just experience the story of It's Alive more than anything else. So thank you, Julian, for being part of the show. And just thanks to you for being here. 
and being part of what we do here. Thank you for sharing everything about Monster Kid Radio online, whether it's retweeting tweets, posting things on Facebook, or getting involved in our Reddit or our Discord or our Patreon. That means a lot to me to know that you're out there and you're participating in the show this way. Also, I love hearing from people, so if you want to contact the show about what you've heard this week or anything you've heard about on the podcast in the past 570-plus episodes, oof, been going for a while. Anyway, this is how you do it. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. That, of course, is available on our website over at MonsterKidRadio.net, where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. So head on over there if you want to know what's up with Monster Kid Radio. We even have listed over there what's coming up next week, but uh, don't tell anybody. I'll go ahead and spoil it right now and let you know that next week we are officially beginning a week late. Lucha de Mayo! here on Monster Kid Radio. What is Lucha de Mayo? Every May, well, almost every May, we celebrate luchador monster movies here on the podcast. And next week, we are kicking things off week one of three weeks of luchador genre film on Monster Kid Radio. I'm going to be joined by Robert Kelly, the man behind Record All Monsters, who, by the way, just this week had me on his show to talk about the movie The Mighty Gorga. He's going to be coming on to Monster Kid Radio next week to talk about a movie whose name I cannot pronounce because I can neither read nor speak Spanish, and I am physically incapable of rolling my R's, but I'll tell you the English title of this movie is Mystery in Bermuda, and it stars the big three, the three Musketeers. Musketeers? Oh, now I want to see all the Disney characters wearing luchador masks. This movie stars the three Musketeers, the big three, the, the trinity of luchador stars, El Santo, Blue Demon, Melmascaras, and they are taking on, well, a lot in mystery in Bermuda, and I had a blast with it. This was a first-time watch for me, and I'll talk all about that and how I got into it with Robert Kelly next week here on the show, so make sure you come back for that. Later on this month, we're going to be doing two more weeks of Luchador movies. Kenny is actually going to be on the show as a proper guest. We're going to talk about another Blue Demon film. He's a huge Blue Demon fan, and I don't blame him. And then I've got a few other things that I may end up doing later this month as well for Lucha de Mayo. So stay tuned for that. And then in June, we get back into the monster movie swing of things. The first episode that's coming out in June, we'll be talking about the movie The Legend of Hell House, with Alistair Hughes. So you have that to look forward to as well. All right, let's go ahead and get this episode in the virtual can and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Warm Up. That is copyright 2022. The Surfer Jets. You can pick that up over at thesurferjets.bandcamp.com or just look up High Tide Recordings. They'll hook you up as well. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week when we get into Lucha de Mayo. Adios.